Hello. Good afternoon, everyone. How's everyone enjoying lunch? Good? First of the year? Okay, yay. Hi, I'm Diana Pizzoni. I'm with Ted Moodis Associates. I'm the head of your programs committee. And along with Jonathan, Jonathan Zietler and Patrick Hankel uh, and the rest of our committee, we would like to welcome you to the first luncheon of 2020. So who's been here in the past for the January luncheon? Show of hands for the economic forecast. Okay, or as I used to like to call it, the slit your wrist forecast. So we have a little different presentation today. Not sure who's seen our speaker in the past, but you are in for a very incredibly energetic and enthusiastic speaker. And I'll just tell you very quickly a little bit about Spencer. He is the chairman of America's Research and Senior Economic Advisor at CBRE. He's been in the industry for well over 23 years. He speaks all across the country and all across the world, actually. And I'm going to let his voice and his energy and his presentation speak for himself. So please, big round of applause, Spencer Levy. <laughs> Chicago is one of the great cities in the world. When I look at any city, I look at three basic factors. Talent, infrastructure, and foreign money. And Chicago has it all. Chicago, for the sixth year in a row, was the number one city in the United States for corporate relocations. It is an inexpensive option compared to many of its coastal peers, New York, San Francisco, and Los Angeles. Chicago is a city on the rise, and let me tell you why. When I look at any market, my number one factor is talent, and Chicago has plenty of it. Number one, they've had enormous population growth with their urban core growing almost 50% since 2000. Number two, they have one of the most highly educated workforces in the United States through their universities and people moving here. Job growth, and it's not just any job growth, it's high quality job growth, as Chicago has one of the strongest tech sectors in the United States, but I would note it's also one of the most diversified job growth sectors with no one industry dominating its city. Innovation is also a major sector within Chicago, as we're seeing over 300 new companies being formed a year, drawing in almost $2 billion of new venture capital money. Chicago is growing from a talent perspective, and the money and investment is following. One of the great advantages of Chicago is it's much more affordable than many of its big city peers in the U.S. And this affordability shows up in two basic ways. Number one, the wages of employees are significantly lower in comparable industries than those cities. But in a commercial real estate standpoint, the costs of rents are much, much lower here, anywhere from one half to one third as much as they might be in some of its big city peers. Because of these cost advantages, Chicago is being discovered by foreign money from Germany, Canada, and even Asia to take advantage of both the low-cost investment and the high-quality workforce. In addition to that, Chicago has tremendous infrastructure, and the infrastructure is not only its two major airports, but also the area that many Chicagoans may complain about, your subway system, your train system, which might seem old or rusty. Let me tell you something. It is irreplaceable, and it is an enormous competitive advantage for Chicago. The last thing I would mention is its central location in the United States, which is a benefit not only from a get-from-here-to-there standpoint, but in particular in the industrial and the shipping space, where I think Chicago is enormously competitive. Like many big cities, Chicago is having issues with both crime and taxes that have gotten the attention of many domestic and foreign investors. From our perspective, the crime issue has actually gotten better as crime has been reduced by about 15% since 2016. While there has been concerns about rising taxes on both an income tax and property level, we believe these increases should not impact your investment decisions as Chicago still remains the lowest cost investment option of any of its big city peers around the United States. So talent, infrastructure, foreign money, a city on the rise, why Chicago? talk about today. I'm going to take Chicago into the global context because I like to start very big picture 
and work it down to practical issues that people on either the occupier side or the investor side can use in their day-to-day -day lives, talking about geopolitics, what I call my five factors of awesome, talking about the economy and stakeholders versus shareholders. But to begin, I should tell everybody I'm a little whimsical today because I'm turning 50 this year, and so because of that, I've been thinking about all these things that I learned back in the 1970s about personal stuff, about the economy and geopolitics. So why don't we start there? A little different than last year's economist, huh? <laughs> so why the 1970s? I'll tell you, when in the 1970s I had some of my great memories. This is me fishing with my dad and my sister in Lake George, New York. And I caught a five and a half pound loudmouth bass, as I called it. And if you're a fisher person, you'll know I'm holding this fish wrong. I'm holding it from the bottom. You're supposed to stick your finger in the gills and hold it kind of like that. But I'm seven years old, and I was a little squeamish, so I held it from the bottom. But you'll also notice that was the only squeamishness about this kid, because there was a very serious expression on his face. And I can tell you, it wasn't just a serious expression. I was literally voted the most serious kid in my second grade class. <laughs> and the question is, why did I win that award? I won that award because I was always keenly aware of the issues that were happening in the world. I was aware about the issues between the United States and the then USSR. As a matter of fact, there was a time when there was an explosion of some sort in my hometown of Harrison, New York. And I asked my mom, was that the big one? Because if you grew up in the 60s and the 70s, you were legitimately afraid of nuclear war. I remember the end of the Vietnam War, and I remember asking, how did the United States get involved in these endless wars that we can't win? I remember when we had a very unpopular president that people were trying to do harm to. By the way, does anybody know who that is? Squeaky Frome, thank you very much for the younger folks in the room. She tried to assassinate President Ford and was recently featured in the movie Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I remember the Iran hostage crisis, and I played a game of Trivial Pursuit once, and the question was, how long was the Iranian hostage crisis? And I said, 444 days. How did I know that? Not by playing a game, because I lived it, and I used to count it down. I remember the Ford Pinto. <laughs> And a lot of people thought the Ford Pinto had a design flaw, which was the Ford Pinto itself. <laughs> but it actually had a much more serious design flaw. Because if you hit the Ford Pinto from just the right angle from the back, the car would explode and kill everybody inside. Now, the scandal was that the manufacturer of the car knew this problem and decided not to fix it because they determined that the lawsuit settlements were cheaper than the recall. And a question that was asked in the 1970s was, has capitalism gone too far? And then, of course, I remember when a blonde-haired rebel took over as prime minister of the UK, trying to separate the UK from the European Union and other ideas that were considered crazy at the time. So let's recap here for folks. a minute, folks. We had the issues with Russia issues with endless wars, with Iran, with an unpopular president, capitalism going too far, and a blonde-haired rebel leading the UK out of the EU. So what exactly has changed since the 1970s? Nothing. We're dealing with the same issues over and over again. And why do I frame today's discussion like that? Well, I'll tell you why. Because not only do some of the geopolitical issues repeat themselves, but I think we are stuck in a 1970s mentality from a real estate perspective. Because when we grew up in the 1970s, what were we scared about the most, Matt? We were scared about the I word. You know what that I word was? Inflation. Inflation. And inflation went bonkers in the 1970s, and because of that, every good person in this room that buys a piece of real estate adds 50 or 100 basis points to their exit cap rate and says, aha, that's the right way to do it. Well, what happened if you did that for the last five or seven years? You were wrong. And guess what? You're going to be wrong again, as inflation is not only going to be lower for longer, it might be lower forever. And then there are other changes to lease structure that we'll talk about how I think we're stuck in a 1970s mentality. But let's talk about geopolitics for just another minute or so. And let's start with this guy. This is Admiral Yamamoto of the Japanese Imperial Army, Navy. This is the guy who actually planned Pearl Harbor. 
Until about four weeks ago, he was the last sitting admiral or general that the United States had assassinated until we assassinated the Iranian General Soleimani. Now, when that happened, a lot of people in the U.S. were afraid that we were going to enter into World War III, that it was going to tank the economy, that the price of oil was going to skyrocket. You know who wasn't afraid? Uh, me. And you know why I wasn't afraid? Because, number one, I wasn't afraid about the price of oil skyrocketing because the U.S. has already been energy independent now for several years because of fracking, more energy independent than we've been before, number one. Number two, in the event there was a hot war with Iran, even though it would have been terrible from a human's perspective, from an economic perspective, wars actually do boost growth. But here is the kicker. I just wrote a blog last week that says headline risk equals opportunity. What does that mean? It means that we, as real estate people, take a look at geopolitics and U.S. issues too much and not enough at local issues. And because of that, when the world gets scared, you should jump into the fire because that's where opportunities lie. Headline risk is overrated. Speaking of headline risks that are overrated, well, you got this headline risk that's a little bit overrated. Now, I'm not worried about this one either not only because I think it's a preordained outcome that the president is not going to be removed, but I will say this from a perspective of people trying to gauge what's going to happen in the election. I think this was a mistake for the Democrats to go after him in this way because two expressions that I live by, that which does not kill me makes me stronger. And my favorite one is, if you're going to take a shot at the king, you better kill him. And they didn't. And because of that, it probably increased his re-election chances. But even if I'm wrong, I'm not worried about this either. <laughs> and I'll tell you why I'm not worried about Joe or Bernie or Elizabeth Warren or, dare I say it, Mike Pence, if he does, in fact, get removed from office. I'm going to tell you a quick story about St. Louis, where my good friend John LaTessa was this morning. The one and only one time that somebody walked out of my speech from being offended was in St. Louis in October of 2016, which is shocking given how many speeches I give that somebody was only offended once. <laughs> this is what I said. I said, whether it's Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton, from a commercial real estate perspective, we're going to be just fine. And with something that neutral, somebody got up in a huff and left. <laughs> so I'm going to double down here now with my good friends here in Chicago, and I'm going to say the following. Whether it's Donald Trump or Elizabeth Warren or Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders, Mike Pence, Mike Bloomberg, from a commercial real estate perspective, we're going to be just fine. <laughs> Nobody left. Nobody left. And why would I say that? This is why I say that, because I study this stuff. <laughs> and if you take a look at the results of GDP growth and job growth going back 50 years through every presidency, almost no impact whatsoever on growth, almost no impact on job growth, because the president is powerful, but not as powerful as the macro economy. So don't worry about this stuff from a commercial real estate perspective. You can worry about it from other perspectives, but from our job, don't worry about it. Now, what is commercial real estate? Let's go back to this whole 1970s thing again. I said that we're stuck in a 1970s mentality. So I'm going to ask you all to take an image in your mind. If you ran into an alien from outer space on the street and they asked you, what does commercial real estate look like to you? I'll tell you what it looks like to me. Looks like my dad's 1975 Ford Grand Torino. And why is that? Because I remember car ads from the 1970s, and there was an ad for Oldsmobile, and their ad was, we're the good old, good old guys. What does that mean? We're steady, steady Eddie, constant, long-term leases. Don't worry about us. Well, I got bad news for you folks. I got into this business 23 years ago because I'm lazy. I'm lazy because like those Ron Popeil ads, I like to set it and forget it. But that's not what this real estate is anymore, is it? Everything is going to become gig-like or hip or shorter term because everything's becoming a hotel. This is not a hotel. This is CBRE's co-working offering HANA. This is the lobby of one of our office buildings, which looks just like the lobby of the hotel I'm staying right here in Chicago. 
which looks just like the hotel I took from the airport, which looks just like the Airbnb I stay in, and dare I say it, you can rent out your basement to your neighbors now for storage, which seems a little creepy, but it is hotel-like. So what happens because of this? What's going to happen because of this? But first, let's dig a little bit deeper into co-working. This is CBRE's estimate for how much co-working space we expect in the industry in the next 10 years. And right now, it's about 2%, and at the low end, we think it's going to go to about 65 high end, 22%. Pretty wide band, and this did come out prior to the, the WeWork IPO failure, but I'll tell you what, our estimates really have not changed, because I've always been kind of at the lower end, at the 6 to 10% of the space, which is still an enormous change. It's going up three, four times. But why have I always been at the low end of the scale rather than the super optimistic side? Very simple. I think to some degree we've overestimated quote unquote millennial demand for the space. And why millennial demand matters is there's a lot of them. They're a lot bigger than the generation before, the generation after them. So because of that, their preferences are going to rule. And how do I know we've overestimated their demand. Well, I wrote a study on it. Two years ago, I wrote a study called Millennial Myths Live, Work, Play. Matt, remember that study? And you know what that study said? Very controversial finding about millennials. It said that millennials are just young human beings. <laughs> and because of that finding, it forecast what actually happened in the future. That when millennials got older, they got married, they had kids, they moved out to the suburbs, and they wanted the same thing that everybody else wants. Not just flexibility in the workplace, but flexibility to work from home or in the workplace. IBM came out with an announcement about three years ago and told all of its flex workers, you better find a permanent place in the office or you better get a new job. Now, when I speak to all my tech company clients, and I was just in Boston a week or two ago talking to them about hiring millennials, they can't hire them because they all want to work from home or in the office, which to me translates into a little bit less demand for the space. But let's talk about value for a second. So I'm a capital markets guy by heart, and I take a look at the value of all the different types of real estate, office, retail, industrial, multifamily, and then I look at what I call their doppelgangers. And what's a doppelganger? Somebody that's like them, but ain't exactly like them. And what I find fascinating about this is that the doppelgangers for office, let's say it's medical office, the cap rates for medical office used to be 150 basis points higher than base office. It's now about the same. The cap rates for manufactured housing, otherwise known as trailer parks, used to be 200 basis points higher than it was for regular multifamily. What changed, and this is really the key change that happened since the 1970s. When you are in real estate, there are only two types of risk. There is traditional real estate risk, that is the risk of underwriting a tenant and they blow out of their lease because they have a credit event, and then there's operational risk, and the operational risk are all the other risks in your building, trying to make the common areas good, trying to run the property, and all these doppelgangers have much higher operating risk than do the base asset classes. But what changed to make them now valued the same when historically they weren't. Two things. Number one, the operational risk of office and retail have gone up. It's now a lot harder to run an office building and retail than it was 10, 20 years ago. And number two, the operational risk of these other asset types have gone down. Why? Because of the influx of private equity capital that has come into these spaces, they bought large operating platforms, they now have critical mass and operations are cheaper. So let me ask you a question now. I talked about a lot of scary things in this opening segment, talking about how the economy has changed, how we have these geopolitical risks, how everything we learned about real estate from the 1970s is wrong. So what do you do to compete in this crazy, fast-changing world? I'll tell you how you compete. You become top banana, just like the kid in this video. I'm very disappointed in that. Oh my God, I am not gonna film this. Please, Will is the banana. Oh no, Will, please don't win. Will, don't win the race, please. Oh no, Will, come on, Will, stop running. That was my 15-year-old son, Will, competing against a bunch of eight-year-olds at a fruit race at the Maryland Blue Crab Stadium in Mount Music, but you gotta be ruthless like that in this world to become top banana. 
Now I should mention as I go into my five factors of awesome, we'll have some time for Q&A at the end, but if you have a dying need to ask a question during, please do. I want this to be as interactive as we can. So let's talk about what this five factors of awesome thing is. What it is, is it's my way of looking at the world. And when I say looking at the world, I mean the world world, because I travel globally every single day. Last week I was in Belfast, Madrid, and Frankfurt. Next week I'll be in Helsinki, Warsaw, and Milan. And I look at the sa those cities exactly the same way I look at Chicago and every other city in America looking through this prism. But before we go into why I consider some cities awesome through these five factors or not, I just want everybody to know that whatever you think about the great cities of the world, Think again, because the great cities in the world weren't always great. They did something, something changed there to make them great. Even cities like Boston, which is one of the truly great cities, and we'll talk a lot about it in a moment, had terrible problems in the 1970s when they lost their entire manufacturing base. New York City almost went broke in the 1970s and asked for a federal bailout. What did they do? Well, before we go into the five factors, I want to just give you the theory of cities. Theory number one is by this guy, Parag Khanna, who wrote a book called Connectography, which talks about megacities. And if you're not in a megacity, you can't compete for talent or capital in the modern world. And what is a megacity? A megacity isn't New York or Boston or D.C. It is the entire corridor down the East Coast. It's not just Chicago. It's Chicago and many of the other cities surrounding it. And so the question is, what do you do if you're in a small city? That's where E.F. Schumacher comes in. And E.F. Schumacher wrote a book in 1974 called Small is Beautiful, which talks about how smaller cities can compete in the modern world. And they can. And they can because they have lower cost. They have family ties, which are hard to quantify but are extremely important. And because of modern technology, you could now work remotely. And so the question is, which one of these guys is right? I hate to be wishy-washy about this, Matt, but they're both right. Because they all have the same basic factors that go into being awesome. And not immodestly, I named them Spencer's Five Factors of Awesome. <laughs> Talent, foreign money, live, work, play, ease of doing business, and infrastructure. Now, I'm going to get a little controversial here for a second because I'm going to put on my Let's look at Chicago lens for a second from the eyes of the guy who flies at 35,000 feet every day. And when you take a look at Chicago, they're well, who's your doppelganger? Is it these guys, Milwaukee, Indiana, Cincinnati, Detroit? Maybe. Is it broader than that? Do you go out and take a look at Boston, DC, Atlanta, or some of the West Coast markets? Maybe. So I'm gonna go now to my good buddy, Matt Vance. I personally think it might be some uh, more of a regional market. Do you agree with that or do you disagree that Chicago is a regional market? And should we be comping against the New Yorks, the San Francisco's, the LA's of the world? Am I on? I would, uh, I would agree and disagree. I think, um, I think we compete most with the coastal markets, the major metros, uh, when we look at the types of tenants that are, you know, knocking on our door, helping them to find space. That's who we're competing with. But when we think about supply chain logistics, when we think about uh, some of the other nuts and bolts uh, sectors, absolutely, the, these Midwest markets have all emerged as huge distribution hubs that play along with and alongside Chicago. Great. Well, thank you, Matt. And Matt Vance is our brand spanking new director of research here in Chicago. Two weeks on the job, Matt? Ten days. Ten days on the job. And Matt is famous not just for being our new... Welcome, Matt, to Chicago. But the one thing you should know about Matt, that he literally goes skiing in Alaska during the winter. When there's one hour of, is there even one hour of daylight up there? Four. Four hours of daylight, so he's got that going for him too. <laughs> talent, talent is the most important factor. And there's two types of talent. Talent is the talent you grow at home, and talent is the talent you attract to your market. And to help us with this, let's talk about Boston. Now, before I talk about Boston, I want you to know I'm not embarrassed to talk about Boston here in Chicago, but I am a little embarrassed now that you know I only own one suit and tie. <laughs> but why are we talking about Boston? We're talking about Boston because Boston is the number one brain drain city in America. 
And what does that mean? They create too much talent out of Harvard, out of MIT, out of uh, Northeastern. And they had to build a seaport. I'm standing in a seaport, 12 million square feet of brand spanking new space that didn't exist when I was living in Boston 25 years ago to keep the people in. And so their brain drain has gotten a little bit better. But you know who scores really well on attracting talent? Not just creating it, but attracting it? Chicago. Chicago is going to score well, not just on the creation of talent. You score 21st in the country. And if you take a look at your peers, you can score you against uh, Indianapolis, Milwaukee, and Cincinnati for the Midwest peers and the bigger market peers. But the key to Chicago isn't this. The key to Chicago is the attraction of that talent from some of the great Midwestern universities that are in the neighborhood. These are places like Notre Dame, places like Indiana University, where I taught twice last year. When I asked the students from IU, where do you want to live? It wasn't Indianapolis, it was here. And I get the same answer when I go down to Charlotte. Where do the kids that go out of North Carolina and out of Duke want to go? They want to go to Charlotte. And Chicago has this tremendous environment that attracts these types of people. Now, when we take a look at Chicago, we also take a look at it not just on the supply, but also the cost of that type of labor. And you can see that Chicago has good supply, maybe not as good as some of the other markets, but a very low cost. Now, a couple of good things on cost and some things to really consider. On the cost side, Chicago was just ranked the least expensive top 25 market globally by UBS. I think UBS came out with that study a few weeks ago. So that's a great thing. We'll attract more people here. We'll attract more business here. But here's the double-edged sword. So I did a gig about a year ago with a guy by the name of Mike Gill. And Mike is the Secretary of Commerce for the state of Maryland. And he was up here on stage with me and he goes, Spence, we're gonna draw all these employers from Washington, D.C. to Baltimore because Baltimore is cheaper. And I said, Mike, I love you, man, but don't ever say that in my presence again. Because low cost is a race to the bottom. You can't win over the long term on low cost. So notwithstanding, in fact, it's an enormous competitive advantage for Chicago to be lower cost in many of these markets. Don't hang your hat on that. You have to continue to move up the value add chain to have higher paying jobs because they create a multiplier effect of additional jobs. And this is the low cost thing. San Francisco is almost a half, 50% more expensive than Chicago, which is great, but don't rely on this because there's always going to be somebody who's going to be cheaper than you. Now, you also have to take a look at other things like manufacturing, and Chicago also scores well there in terms of supply and relative affordability to their markets. I think this is really important. Now, the GDP report just came out this morning and showed a decline in industrial demand, uh, a decline in manufacturing. Uh, why? Because people aren't buying as many cars and the Boeing situation had real impact on GDP and on demand. That's where we are today. I believe this is going to get better again, not just for Chicago, but for many of these Midwestern markets that have this strong manufacturing base, because I believe manufacturing is going to come back to the United States. Now, it's not going to be job heavy, but it is going to come back because of cheapening automation that's going to make it competitive with places like Mexico and China. In terms of total job creation, you'll see that Chicago did pretty well, but Dallas is knocking it out of the park in terms of total job creation. So Chicago is creating a lot of jobs comparable to most comp cities, but maybe not as much as Dallas. So Matt, let me ask you again, when you look at Chicago, are we a tech town? Are we a manufacturing town? Are we a health town? What is the first thing that comes to your mind as the research guy? Your video. We're the most <laughs> I think we were just ranked the most diverse economy in the country. Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, it's all of it, right? And uh, I think the momentum is with tech and uh, a lot of that VC money coming here. But I think all that has done is, is yeah, broaden the base and uh, put, us, put us in a great position. And I agree with that. Yes, question. Here we go. Warming up the crowd. Question. Okay, I'll just yell it loud. Shout it out. Out of curiosity, why is New York not up there as one of the comparing markets when a lot of our companies, here we go, when a lot of our companies or clients that we work for have offices Chicago and New York, and so we're always having this comparison across mm -hmm. these two cities? Well, uh, like I said, I believe actually you're right. I, when I comp Chicago, I comp it against New York.
and San Francisco and LA and the major markets, but from a industry perspective, I comp it against these. So I agree with you. It is your biggest competitive advantage to comp against these other cities, particularly when we get into the most challenging aspect, which is the ease of doing business question, which is one of my five factors. Because when you look at that, people are like, oh, Chicago's in trouble. That, by the way, that's my Jim Gaffigan. Hot pockets. <laughs> when you look at Chicago relative to other cities, it scores a lot better. And so you, when you score it against New York, you score a lot better. And I like your talent here too. Let's talk about the importance of education in the city of Chicago as a whole. Really, the talent is both created here and it's coming here. Yes. And I think it bodes well for the future. What do you think about that, Colette? I think the fact that Chicago is such a diverse economy and it is such a vibrant space has made it a magnet for students wanting to go to school here. And we're really fortunate that we have so many different universities and colleges here. Universities like Roosevelt, DePaul, Loyola, Northwestern, University of Chicago. I mean, we are truly an education hub and education will lead to a stronger economy for the city. I mean, whoever thought Chicago would go from being a manufacturing Rust Belt city to now being perceived as a hub for technology talent. There is a lot of dynamic growth just below the surface here, and that will make a real difference for Chicago and reinforce that this is still a good place to invest. Education and talent are the bedrocks of the city of Chicago, and it's upon that Chicago is going to grow for many years to come. Thank you very much, Colette. Thanks, Spencer. Colette English Dixon, good friend of mine, runs the Roosevelt Real Estate Program here. You can tell I'm a pretty big fan of Chicago, so don't take my tough love at times the wrong way. Let's talk about foreign money for a second. One of my five pillars, and why do I like foreign money so much? Well, first of all, I'm in front of foreign money every single day, and I get questions every single day about where do I put my money. And let me tell you something, foreign money is picky, really picky, and if they pick your market, they have given you the good housekeeping seal of approval that then means they're going to bring their friends. I was in Frankfurt on Monday and I was meeting with a big investor here, Commerce Real, that just bought 125 South Clark. They bought an asset right in Fulton Market. And then I met with DECA and then I met with Union. These are all big German funds and because Commerce came here, they all want to come here too and they own as well. So it's, a, it's, it's all a uh, group think type of thing in a good way. Uh, but the thing that's happening with foreign money now is they're having trouble finding yield around the country, even in markets like Chicago. And so because of that, they're now spreading out. So while Chicago is getting a lot of it, Manhattan, Atlanta, New York, some of these smaller markets, Cincinnati, Salt Lake City, San Antonio are getting a much bigger increase in this foreign money. But here's the deal. When I talk about foreign money, I use the expression that you should lead the money don't follow the money. Because if you follow the money, the yields have already compressed. But if you lead the money and find these markets that have these four of the five factors of awesome, you're going to find cap rate compression. Now, one of the things that we look at when we take a look at markets is not just the amount of yield you're going to get. And Chicago's yield is comparable with markets like Houston, Seattle, uh, but it's also liquidity. Liquidity matters a lot because there are some investors who cannot invest in your market unless they know they can get out when the investment term is over. And the good news is Chicago has a lot of liquidity because Chicago is a very big market, almost $25 billion of sales in 2018, a little bit less than that last year. But if you take a look at your foreign capital perspective, about 16%, not bad. But the highest percentage in the United States is San Francisco at 40%, and the highest percentage in the world is London at 60. Folks, when I talk about the things you should be doing or thinking about doing, it is bringing that foreign money, and you can't just go in foreign money and bring hat in hand, go to Bahrain and pick up some money. There are things that create a virtuous cycle, and let me tell you a story about that. I sold a suburban office building in Nashville about a year ago to a high net worth individual from Bahrain for 100 million bucks. How did he find Nashville on a map? Because his kid went to school at Vanderbilt. It's the same thing here. You use your schools as your driver with foreign students to drive the foreign money into your town. Live, work, play. 
even though I talked about some of these other factors before, I think live work play is the second most important factor behind talent. And to talk about live work play, let's first talk about Nashville. And I show you Nashville, first of all, because this is the only known photograph of me with a mustache. <laughs> and I still haven't shown it to my wife. She would have probably thrown me out of the house. But what does Nashville, Austin, Texas, and Portland, Oregon all have in common? They all have the same city slogan. Keep Nashville weird. Keep Austin weird. Keep Portland weird. What does that mean for these three cities that are drawing in an outsized amount of talent? I'll tell you what it means. It means that other places are not keeping it weird. Places like Moscow, where I was a few months ago, and I ordered a beer. I said, give me a Russian beer. Budweiser. No bull. <laughs> Let me tell you another story. I got an office at 777 Brickell in Miami, and they got a good little coffee shop down there I've been going to for 12 years. And when I go to this coffee shop, I get my little Cafe Cubano, I get my little Cafe Cold Leche. So I go down there the other day, I say, can I have my Cafe Cubano, Cafe Cold Leche? They said, new ownership, but we'll give you a latte. And I said, no, you won't. I got in an Uber and I went to Little Havana and I got my fix. The world is becoming infected by generic hipsters. <laughs> You must maintain your local character if you're going to continue to attract and retain talent like Nashville, Portland, and Austin, Texas have done. But it's not just maintaining that local character from food that brings people in. This is me in Helsinki, Finland, where I'm going to be again next week, standing in front of what probably looks like to you a Class C industrial building. You know what this building looks like to me? Looks like the hip, cool, young, best retail place I saw in Helsinki. You know what else this building looks like to me? Looks just like the building that Wells Fargo just moved into in Charlotte, North Carolina, moving out of a tower in downtown Charlotte into something like this. You know what this building looks like to me? Looks like the Fulton Market here in Chicago, which is they're building buildings and reconfiguring them to look just like this, just like they're doing in the Wynwood section of Miami, just like they're doing in the Arts District of L.A., just like they're doing in the Third Ward of Milwaukee. Folks, I am Johnny Cash of real estate. I have been everywhere, man, and I am seeing this stuff. <laughs> Not just food, it's architecture. Because of, I've got some good, fancy real estate friends here in Chicago. Can one of you please tell me what city that is? Beijing. Close. There are no wrong answers, though that is wrong, which is a good guess. <laughs> that is Moscow, and Moscow looks just like that. An old water treatment plant that is one mile from the Kremlin, which they are converting to turn into something that looks exactly like the building you saw in Helsinki, Charlotte, Fulton Market in Chicago. Speaking of Fulton Market in Chicago, let's think about that. I'm standing here at Fulton Market in Chicago. This is where it's all happening. It has become the hotbed of high tech and Fortune 500 companies moving here. CBRE did a study in 2017 called Millennial Myths, Live, Work, Play, thinking about exactly these types of environments with exposed brick buildings, with new restaurants and some of the top employers in the world. Fulton Market in Chicago, Hipsterville, Live, Work, Play, a great place to be. By the way, you should know I do this for every single market I go to. Actually, I don't. You're the only market I've done this for, but thank God I have two gigs today to do this stuff. <laughs> Ease of doing business. Folks, let's cut to the chase here. This is the one that most people are talking about when they're thinking about Chicago today, which is why I spend a lot of time in Chicago at Cubs games wearing, of course, my ubiquitous Orioles hat. <laughs> this is why I like Chicago. I like Chicago because you score extremely well on live, work, play, on foreign money, on talent and infrastructure, which we're going to talk about next. You do exceptionally well there, too. A lot of people say, oh, he's doing business. It's hard to do business here. I did a gig two weeks ago in New York City with my number one producer in the world, Marianne Tai. And I said, Marianne, New York's a tough place to do business. What do you say about that? She said, yep. And that's a good thing. And she said that because it keeps the supply down, makes it 
a competitive advantage for the locals. But that's what she said about New York. But here's the thing about Chicago. Yeah, it does not score particularly well on ease of doing business, but it scores a hell of a lot better than New York does and San Francisco does because based upon a current study by Arizona State University, you know what the hardest place in America to do business is? Drum roll, please. San Francisco. Number 77. Now, it's still a great market for core money because they have tremendous talent and live, work, play. Chicago scores 45th, so a lot better than a lot of these other cities. But if you take a look at it yourselves regionally, Chicago 45, about the same as the Midwestern. You score better than New York. You score better than San Fran, than L.A., than D.C. So, look. You've got to be straight up about the issues that you're dealing with, but ultimately you do better than many of the major cities in the world. The one area where you're going to run into a little bit of issues is paying taxes, which comes in towards the bottom, but still better than you are in California. When you're comping yourself out, you have to take a look at the total picture. And it's not just taxes, it is starting a new business, it is employing workers, it is registering property. Overall, Chicago scores very well. As a matter of fact, the best scoring ease of doing business among major markets in the United States. So next time somebody says, oh, my company in Chicago is hard to do business here, say, well, we're better than New York, San Francisco, and LA. Should I drop the mic now? I mean, what are we talking about here? <laughs> So let me give you one quick case study here. The number two market in the country to do business is Arlington, Virginia, better known out now as National Landing or Crystal City. What happened there? Amazon happened there. They moved their HQ2 there about a year ago, and one of our clients, JBG Smith, is building it, and I spent a lot of time with them there. Why did Amazon pick this market? They picked this market because, number one, it is the number two easiest place in America to do business, but also they have the best infrastructure of any market that I have seen. Number one, they have a subway train that goes from downtown Crystal City to downtown D.C., they say they have red state pricing, Virginia, with blue state talent, D.C., where all of the people commute from. They also have the Amtrak train coming down from New York, and the piece of resistance is you could now walk to the airport. The good news about Chicago is, with the exception of being able to walk to the airport, you've got all of this stuff in droves. As a matter of fact, when we talk about infrastructure, you'll see you score second in the United States. But there's a key factor I need to talk to you about here when we talk about these five factors of awesome. You can't just look at them in a vacuum. You have to look at them as a package because some factors may point in this direction while you might get pushed in the other direction by other factors. So look at them as, as a package. And to make this really important point, I need to bring in a special consultant with this uh, point here, Matt. And that special consultant, of course, is my Grandma Bess. <laughs> and for my colleagues at CBRE, how many times have you seen Grandma Bess? Never enough. You know what? I'll tell you what. There are two reasons I like talking about my Grandma Bess. Number one, I like talking about my Grandma Bess. And number two, I moved my Grandma Bess from her apartment in Regal Park, Queens, to an assisted living center in Stanford, Connecticut, when she was 95 years old about 10 years ago. Why did I move her? I moved her because she lost mobility. She couldn't get around anymore. But what if I were to make that same decision today? Would I have made the same decision? I'm not so sure because of Uber and Lyft and one day self-driving cars. Because technology is allowing more people to age in place, not having to move outside the house. So you have to think about how this technology is impacting your real estate decisions. Even if all demographics are saying more people are getting older, Technology is saying the other thing. And then you got to look at regional differences. So if you take a look at how much or how many self-driving cars you're going to have, our study from last year said about 15% of all cars on the road are going to be self-driving in about 10 years. But this is not a universal statement. You have to look at local cultural differences. Speaking of local cultural differences, I think right now is a good time for my Texas joke. So I was in Ireland not just last week, but about six months ago playing golf with a client, John Maxwell. And John was not a very good golfer. So I took a few bucks off the guy on the golf course, and then I go to his house, and he serves me a beer, Miller Lite. I'm like, John, I thought all you Irish guys were good golfers and drank Guinness. He said, Spence, I thought all you Americans had guns and pickup trucks. <laughs> I then told that joke in Dallas, and nobody got it. <laughs> The point is, Dallas is a driving culture, and they're never getting rid of their cars, no matter what this is. So you have to look not only at the macro trends, you've got to look at the micro trends in your market. We're trying to determine which ones of these things you're going to follow. Now, I told you about the ranking. 
University of Arizona, Arizona State had a great ranking system for ease of doing business. University of Minnesota probably has the premier transportation studies department in the US. And this is what they say. Where is the best transportation accessibility? Number three, Chicago. Good stuff, right? This is important. But I will tell you, this is not as important as the other one. And this one is the killer, not in a good way. Killer is actually a good term in this context. Air accessibility. Folks, you guys may not like going to O'Hare and Midway. You know who likes going there? I do. You know who else likes going there? People from around the world. This is Chicago's biggest international infrastructure competitive advantage, even more so than the trains getting around town, which all of you guys think are rusty. By the way, I go to every single city, everybody complains about their trains. Do you know what kind of a competitive advantage is those trains? You know what it costs to replace those trains? Chicago, great infrastructure. So, Spencer's five factors of awesome, talent, foreign money, live, work, play, ease of doing business and infrastructure, and Chicago does great. All right, let's talk about the economy very quickly. In the interest of time, we're gonna skip over to the economy. This is Paul Volcker. Paul Volcker is my Fed hero. He recently passed away about six months ago, six weeks ago. He was the chairman of the Fed from 1979 to 1987. And why he is he my Fed hero? Well, I'll tell you why he's my Fed hero. Because in 1981, when President Reagan was elected, Paul Volcker walked into his office and said, Mr. President, Congratulations, you just won the presidency. This is what I'm gonna do for you. I'm gonna raise interest rates to 15% and I'm going to intentionally put the United States into a recession. What do you say? <laughs> President Reagan said yes, he did it, and inflation has now been ticking down ever since. He broke the back of inflation. By the way, uh, Jamie, when I did that, I was looking around the room, there's some younger folks in this room, and I saw smoke coming out of their ears when I said 15%, because they'd never heard an interest rate that high. Well, now I'm gonna play the game of who here had a home mortgage in the early 1980s? <laughs> Whose home mortgage was double digits? Folks, those hands are still in the air. That's called reality, and this guy solved it. But he may have done too good of a job. He may have done too good of a job because his successor was this guy, Alan Greenspan, who was on CNBC last week and he said that the 10-year treasury in the United States might go to zero. It's about 1.7% today. Now, it's zero over in Europe, where I just was last week, going next week in Germany. Japan has been below zero, negative interest rates. And a lot of the young folks in this room are saying, oh, that's a good thing, right? Well, I got a home loan, student loan, car loan. The debt's gonna get cheaper. Cheap debt's good. Well, let me tell you something. The problem with no inflation means no growth. And then some people say, Matt, they say growth is overrated. Says, you know what, because of all this new technology, I have more free time. Some people are talking about three-day work weeks. I could stay home, I could paint, I can write poetry. Well, let me tell you something. <laughs> I like puppy dogs and rainbows as much as the next guy. But the only thing that's funded my 401k account is good old-fashioned growth, because there ain't no free lunch. Now, the good news is we are going to grow. The bad news is it's not as quickly. This is actually our forecast for growth for the next several years, and I will tell you that we were pretty accurate because that 2.3% was written before the numbers came out today at exactly 2.3% growth for last year. But we're gonna grow at a slightly slower rate going forward, topping out at around 2%, which is much below our 3% historic average. Now, our forecast, the reason why that's gonna happen is because we have low inflation, low interest rates. You will note, for the record, I don't agree with everything my company said, which is a big, problem sometimes when I debate with my economist friends, but I will tell you, I've been right on Trump, Brexit, inflation, and I'm gonna be right this time as well too. This number is going to be a lot lower, inflation over the next couple of years. And because I don't, don't just believe inflation is gonna be lower for longer, I think it's going to be lower forever because of too much cheap money, cheap energy, cheap labor, and innovation itself, the value of commercial real estate is going to go up. Cap rates are gonna go up because the cost of capital is gonna continue to go down. How do I know this? Because I just got back from Europe and the cap rates on the comparable asset in Europe to a comparable asset in the United States is about 150 basis points lower there because their inflation is 150 basis points lower. So the good news or the silver lining to the end of the world, which I like to say sometimes, is that values are gonna go up even if inflation goes down.
Shareholders versus stakeholders. There was a major change that happened with the business roundtable about three months ago. And the change was they said that businesses shouldn't care as much about maximizing shareholder value, which was the only thing they cared about. They should also care about stakeholder value. So on the business roundtable are many of these great companies, some of which are in the room today, including CBRE, care about stakeholders. And a stakeholder is not just your own people, it's the people in the community, it's diversity, it's the environment. There's a lot of things that go into that stakeholder thing. Salden's not controversial, right? Well, you know what, it was pretty controversial because the op-ed page of the Wall Street Journal came out against it. Even Warren Buffett does not give from charity from his business. He does a lot personally, but not through his business. He says it's the purpose of the state to do that. Well. I disagree with that. I think corporations should be charitable. But the, nevertheless, the question is not what my big picture thought is. The question is, how does this apply to you, Mr. or Ms. real estate professional? What do we do about this? Well, let me give you a very nuts and bolts decision that every one of you has to make in this room every day in the corporate occupier world. What do I put in my workspace? And these are the top 15 or so amenities that people want in the workspace, according to a study we did about a year ago, of our Fortune 500 clients. And there's nothing controversial on this screen. People want wellness facilities, they want coffee, they want on-site healthcare. But you know what the number one thing they want? They want full service cafeterias in the workplace. Okay, sounds pretty reasonable, people like food. And by the way, as a professional speaker, I don't eat in advance of speeches, and I really was disappointed with myself today because I missed that veal parmesan, man. It looked good. <laughs> but cafeterias, why am I talking about cafeterias? Because about 18 months ago, San Francisco tried to ban the construction of new cafeterias in the workplace. Why would they do that? Can they do that? The reason why they did that is because people were building fortress-style office buildings in San Francisco. People were walking in in the morning. They weren't walking out till late at night. Who learned that lesson? Amazon. Because if you recall, when they did HQ2, they picked two locations. One location was Long Island City. One was Crystal City, which I just gave you. They were run out of town at Long Island City because they weren't taking into consideration what the local stakeholders wanted. So when they build their new facility in Crystal City with JBG Smith, they're building very few cafeterias because they want their people to walk on the streets and interact with local businesses. Now think what you want about Amazon, but you know what I think about Amazon? I think they are the most efficient company in the history of the world. They changed everything for an entire industry. And if the most efficient company in the history of the world wants their employees to be inefficient by leaving the workplace, something's up here. And that something up is number one, caring about the stakeholders, and number two, thinking about productivity, not just efficiency. And they're not the same, we can talk more about that in a moment. Funny little side note note. There's one amenity that's not on the screen. When we take a look at what amenities that employees want, this is based upon a survey that just came out a couple of weeks ago, the number one amenity is trust. And how do I know that? Because three years ago, I did a corporate gig and I said, you know what I've been seeing all over Silicon Valley in the workplace? Bars. When I say bars, I mean bar bars. I mean booze bars, not like beer and wine bars. I mean tiki bars right in the middle of the work floor, the biggest workplaces I go to. This is the earmuffs moment, by the way, John. <laughs> Why do they have bars in the middle of the workspace? Because they want to show their employees that they trust them. Because by having it there, it creates a, a cycle of trust. They don't want people getting hammered during the day. They want people to self-enforce, and it creates a culture of trust. So, John, can we open a bar? See that? Put them on the spot right there. All right, let's, let's wrap this up the following way, and then we'll take some questions. So as we talked about today, all the great things I learned, I learned in the 1970s. I had my learned about the economy, I learned about geopolitics, and all of my great memories in life really start from the 1970s. But not all of them. Why do birds That's the time my mother made me dance with, with her too close to you by the carpenters at my bar mitzvah. <laughs> Sticking with me ever since. So what kind of advice am I giving my clients of what do you do to grow in a low growth environment? Go to the places where there's growth. And the fastest growth in the world 
over the next several years is going to come from the United States and the United Kingdom, with the exception of China. Look, folks, I said at the beginning, I'm going to say it again, you shouldn't worry about geopolitics as much, you shouldn't worry about U.S. politics as much. And whether you like Donald Trump, you don't like Donald Trump. Whether you like Boris Johnson, you don't like Boris Johnson. The conclusion doesn't change. And the conclusion is that the United States and the United Kingdom are the two cleanest dirty shirts in the global investment laundry. And you're going to continue to get more money and occupiers there than any place else. Exhibit A, the situation in Hong Kong. We've seen more money and occupiers coming out of Hong Kong back to the UK, even in the face of the Brexit. Now, what am I telling people to do from a market standpoint here in the United States? A lot of them I'm saying, move up the risk spectrum, go into smaller markets, go up to riskier deals. But what am I telling more of my international investors to do? What am I telling more of my domestic institutions to do? Is to do that. Go back into the big markets, number one, because I believe in the Paragon mega megacity theory. And number two, I believe that cap rates are going to go down further because of low inflation, and that will benefit cities like Chicago. Thank you very much. Should I take a couple questions? Couple questions, any questions? Yes. I'll throw another one in. Um, have you, when you're factoring these, do you, or all the economies and the forecasts, et cetera, do you ever factor in um, large scale, profi large profile mm -hmm. uh, medical epidemics into this and how it will affect We it? did. In fact, um, I have a piece which is on my desk right now about the current uh, epidemic in China. Um, the, not the tragedy, that's too strong a word. The reality of it is that it's a short term dislocation. Uh, it's not something that we expect to be. Uh, a major global pandemic that's going to bring down the economy. Yes, it is going to slow growth in the first quarter meaningfully in China. It's going to stop air traffic, which is going to further retard growth in the first quarter. Uh, so yes, we do factor in events like that. We also factor in events like earthquakes. We factor in events like hurricanes. And let me talk about this. I didn't talk about uh, the environment much, but I'll talk about it right now. I get asked all the time, what is the most significant issue in commercial real estate? And I did a YPO event, Young President's Organization event in LA recently, and they said global warming. And when we talk about the environment and real estate, you have to ask yourself, well, what does it mean? It really means two things. It means, number one, sustainability, and the second is resilience. Here's another one of my punchlines, Jamie. Do you know which city came out number one as having the greenest office buildings in America? Chicago. And that's because of how you construct them and how you've retrofitted old buildings, like the one I referenced before, 125 South Clark with uh, Commerce Real. 75% of your buildings are green in Chicago, your office buildings. But now I'm going to give you the, the downside to that. The number one city in America for green multifamily apartment buildings is Denver. 7%. 75%? 7%. Why is that? Because there's no tenant demand for it. You see no tenant demand for it in industrial. You see no tenant demand for it in retail or even in hotels. That's going to change now because I just got back from Europe and all the investors I met with now are now having environmentally sensitive standards for how you buy stuff. So people who get ahead of that curve will be able to get the money, but we have a long way to go on that. That's the bad news. The good news on a resilient standpoint, we studied Houston post-earthquake, post-hurricane, Florida, Mexico post-earthquake. Those commercial real estate stock was very, very strong, but sustainability still has a long way to go. Yes, sir, what's your name? Uh, Mike Kirchhoff. With regards to Chinese growth, it's been slowing for some time. I see that you've got projected to drop more. Uh, you know, maybe the maybe the pandemic will drop it temporarily. But uh, oh, thank you. But but what's the and, and also I think uh, the trajectory of that'll be impacted by the U.S.-China trade deal. What's what's your what are your thoughts about slowing Chinese growth on the U.S. economy and U.S. growth and maybe worldwide? Well, my dad would call five and a half percent growth a high-class problem to have uh, compared to the rest of the world. I and mean, you, they've gotten so large, it's hard to grow at that rate over the long term. The real challenge the world has is that the world is aging 
And because of its aging, the fact that we have very low birth rates, the fact that we have no immigration, that's going to retard growth more than anything else. I am an optimist, but let me be careful about what I say here because I want to be very specific. I am a macro pessimist. I think because of demographics, we are going to see slower growth forever. We're going to see slow, slower inflation forever. Bad news. Good news. I'm a micro optimist because those cities and places that follow these five factors that I'm talking about are going to have outsized growth in all of the five major asset classes. You probably noticed I didn't talk that much about office, retail, industrial. I could have done that. The reason is I buy markets. I don't buy the five asset types because markets that have good multifamily are going to have good retail. They're going to have, they all go together because they have a virtuous cycle. I have a big client in New York City, a big private equity firm that my mission in life for this big private equity firm is to, quote, find them the next Oakland. Why? What's Oakland? People say, oh, I don't want to be compared to Oakland. I got in trouble once for comparing a city to Oakland. Well, you know what Oakland is? It's 20 minutes on the subway from San Francisco. And because of that, they are getting all of the spillover talent. Their office spaces was cheaper. Their industrial was cheaper. Their multifamily was cheaper. They backed up the truck six years ago, and they've made a killing. So they buy markets like that, buy markets like Atlanta. So back to your question. Uh, I'm not worried about China's growth per se. I am worried about the birth dearth, as it's called, uh, because without having a faster population growth, an aging population, we're going to all be Japanified. And that's a, that's a term. It's called Japanification. Because Japan hasn't grown in 30 years, and they have the worst demographics in the world, no birth rate, and everybody lives to 90 years old over there. But what they do have is the highest standard of living in the world. So a study came out recently which ranked cities, countries by being, quote, the least miserable. I don't know if that means they're happy, but they ranked them as being least miserable. You know where Japan ranked on that? They ranked third least miserable country on earth. You know where the U.S. ranked on that? 38th, right behind Bulgaria. <laughs> so a lot of the things that we think were land of the free, home of the brave, necessarily, doesn't necessarily make us less miserable. Yes, sir, what's your name? Do you think real estate investors will care or they'll be impacted by the $130 billion unfunded state pensions and the $30 billion uh, city pensions that are unfunded? Short answer, no. Longer answer, more complicated, and I'll tell you why. Because there are other places that have pension fund problems. And the other places that have pension fund problems are in California. Uh, in Boston. New York has got the same basic problem. The question is, because it's unfunded, is that going to lead to a spiking of taxes? That's really the question you're asking. And the short answer is, I don't believe it will. Um, and, and the reason for that, and this is a tough answer, I don't think the pension fund problem is solvable through traditional economic means. People have tried to do that. They tried to solve it, but there's a constitutional pro prohibition of, of diminishing pension fund obligations here in the state of Illinois. So I consider it to be more of a chronic problem until there's some kind of global financial crisis and then it's going to be solved through, through other means, but it's not going to destroy the business community in the short term. I'm doing a gig this afternoon with the head tax assessor here in uh, Illinois. And even though nobody in this room wants taxes to go up, nobody, right? Why would you, right? But now there's going to be a little bit more certainty on those taxes so people can underwrite those taxes and so people can have more confidence to come in. Matt was telling me before, we saw a big fall off in investment volume in Chicago in the second half of last year. I think that's going to pick up now because I think now we have that certainty again. But no, even though the math is exactly what you say it is, I don't think it's going to lead to a massive tax spike because uh, even here in Chicago or any place else, they're not going to cut off their nose to spite their face. Yes, sir. Name. Columbus, Ohio. I was just in Columbus the other day. I got a funny story about this. So I'm a big blogger. And I wrote a blog maybe two months ago. I said, if it was my last meal on earth, and it was three in the morning, it would be White Castle. <laughs> Who read that blog? White Castle. <laughs> they invited me to their headquarters in Columbus. 
show you the blog, they gave me a whole box full of swag. And uh, in any event, I'm a big White Castle fan, but that's not the point of the story. But when I was in Columbus, I toured the city. I did a gig at the Ohio State University. I walked South High Street. But here's the thing that people need to come to grips with about places like Columbus. Even though South High Street was great, it looked just like the Fulton Market here in Chicago, their downtown was really struggling. And that is the challenge of these older cities. Sometimes you have to not say let it go, but you, you need to double down on the areas in these cities that are killing it, like the Fulton Market. And what Columbus is doing is putting it on South High Street. They're also putting it next to the arena. Richmond, Virginia, another struggling city. They're doubling down on their arena, building a brand new one, putting all the new development around that. That's exactly what they're doing in Tampa Bay by the Tampa Bay waterfront. $3 billion job that's being done by Bill Gates and this guy Vinnick who owns the Tampa Bay Lightning, concentrating their growth around these high growth areas rather than saying we need to spread it out all over. And that's a tough, that's a tough conversation, right? Particularly in places like Chicago that has a very fractionalized political base. You have to come to grips with that. But places like Columbus are great. Even this strip in Detroit, John LaTessa's hometown, is doing great near where GM's is. Ford just built, bought the old train station, putting an innovation center. So there's, there's pockets of strength in many. Indianapolis is another city that's poised. So I would say those two cities, but even Milwaukee, the third ward in Milwaukee, is doing exceptionally well too. And again, it's not the entire city, it's these corridors within these cities, but they have the same five factors in the Midwest. Last question and then we'll, uh, I'll let everybody go. Yes, sir. I just want to tag on to your answer just now. What, how do you prepare Kansas City in that mix? You're gonna love this answer, man. <laughs> I got really bad news for you first. I may be the fancy guy here in the suit. I'm only an expert in three things coffee, airports, and steak. And they're all relevant to this story. <laughs> I told you I was the Johnny Cash of real estate and I've been everywhere, man. Kansas City has the worst airport in America, <laughs> period. And the reason why it's so bad is you have to leave the airport to get coffee. That's pretty bad, all right? Now, that's the bad news. Here's the good news. Kansas City is also putting $3 billion into their airport. In fact, I went and did a gig up in Canada recently with a large pension fund, and I said, I like Kansas City because it's got the university to putting money into the airport. And they said, quote, unquote, we have a emerging market strategy in the United States. And they loved Kansas City for that reason. But here's the bad news about Kansas City. I said I was an expert in three things, right? Coffee, steak, and airports. Here's the steak story. Now, I grew up going to fancy steak joints in New York because my dad was a lawyer. He used to take me to all these places. And I learned from the age of eight years old that the difference between a New York strip and a Kansas City strip is a bone. So I go to Kansas City. It's some fancy Kansas City restaurant. I order the Kansas City strip in Kansas City. Steak comes up here. Looked delicious. There was a problem. There was no bone in the steak. I told the waiter, I said, nice steak. Where's the bone? He said, you don't need a bone in a Kansas City strip. I said, when you're from New York, you do. So Kansas City may be doing all these great things in infrastructure, but they're becoming a generic hipster. Thank you very much. Thank you, Spencer. Thank you everyone for coming today. Please fill out your surveys. Leave comments, suggestions. If you do have suggestions for uh, future events, please let us know. We'd love to put it together.